be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that these words speak to us of the deep joy of knowing you. That there is no higher pleasure, no higher calling in this life that we spend here on earth other than knowing you and delighting in your presence. And Lord, we pray today as we hear your word that you'd help us to focus in on that wonderful truth. That there is no higher calling, no higher experience, no higher joy in this short life than knowing you. Amen. This psalm, Psalm 34, that we're looking at today, is an interesting psalm. I was wondering this week what to preach on as we finished up our series on the church. And Psalm 34, in particular, the first 10 verses, kept popping up. I don't know how many of you have experienced that sometimes. The Lord will keep putting a scripture in your way until you take notice of it. And that's what happened this week. So we're looking today at Psalm 34, one of my favourite psalms. A psalm speaking, of course, of the joy of knowing God. Today we're going to focus particularly on the first ten verses. Next time I'm speaking, we will finish up covering the last 14 verses. The psalm divides neatly into two, you see. Uh, The first ten verses, Charles Spurgeon said, were a hymn. The first 10 verses 
are a hymn of praise. And then the last 12 verses are a sermon. So Psalm 34 is both a hymn and a sermon. It's also an alphabetical psalm. I don't know how many of you know this, but certain psalms follow an acrostic pattern. Psalm 119 is like that. It's divided up into the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and so on and so forth. And Psalm 34 is one of those psalms. It's an alphabetical psalm. I don't know if you realise, but the very word alphabet comes from the Hebrew Aleph, Bet. Um, Very interesting. And so we're looking today at an alphabetical psalm. Verse 1 begins, of course, with an Aleph. Verse 2 begins with a Bet. Verse 3 begins with a Gimel and so on. The only letter not covered is Vav, which is the sixth um, letter. Very interesting psalm indeed. It's a psalm of David. Um, The scribes tell us that this psalm was written by David at the time when he escaped from the king of Gath, Abimelech. The story is, is found in 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15, which I'll, I'll take you to now, and I'll read briefly. You don't need to turn there. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behaviour before him and pretended to be insane. And his hands were made marks on the doors of the gate, and he let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And Achish drove David away into the wilderness. Now some commentators have said that the scribes have made a mistake here. Because of course the king of Gath in 1 Samuel is called Achish. Not Abimelech as Psalm 34 says. But It seems that Abimelech, which is actually made up of two words in Hebrew, Avi, my father, and Melech, which means king, could be translated my father the king, or my father king, or my father lord, is a royal title rather than a first name. So, for example, we know in Egypt, of course, that we have the name Pharaoh. We have Ramses first, Ramses second, but of course all of them were called Pharaoh, and in a similar way, many think that this Abimelech was actually a royal title. Now, once David had escaped from Gath, he'd escaped from the king of Gath, he fled, didn't he, into the wilderness. He was fleeing from Saul, who at this time was seeking his life, seeking to take his life. And where did David flee to? He fled to, we're told, the cave of Adullam. Here is a picture of one of the caves of Adullam. And it's here in Adullam's cave that this psalm, Psalm 34, was probably written. We read in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2. David departed 
from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. I want for us to see that this psalm was written at a time of crisis in David's life. This psalm was written perhaps at one of the lowest ebbs of David's life. He was on the run, fearing for his life. Saul, the father figure who had once so loved him, now hated him and sought to kill him. David, in a short space of time, had gone from eating at the royal table, surrounded by nobles, to living in a cave with a bunch of outcasts. Imagine how that must have felt for this young man. A hero to zero in no time at all. David was anointed, wasn't he, by Samuel the prophet when he was just a teenager. And of course then he had famously defeated and slain Goliath, the giant of Gath, and experienced a meteoric rise to fame in the land of Israel. In fact, of course, when he arrives at Gath, he's known to the people inside the city. Is this not David? King of all the land, you defeated Goliath. There's a meteoric rise to fame, but now here we find our David, the hero, seemingly with his life in tatters. How could he fulfill God's plan for his life to be king of Israel, sat in this damp cave with a bunch of outcasts who were broken in spirit? And the chosen king of Israel is seeking his life. How could that plan possibly come to pass now? I want to say that God's plan for your life isn't always linear. God's plan for your life doesn't always go A to B to C to D to E to F. Sometimes it goes A, B, J. A, K, David, David, Joseph, there's a new Bible character for you. Joseph went from being the most favoured son in his household, Israel's favoured son of his old age, to being accused of rape and an inmate in a prison. Moses went from Royalty being raised in Pharaoh's house, the grandest royal house in the whole world at that time, to being a nomad, caring for sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of that life. And David went from hero to fugitive. One of my favourite movies, Harrison Ford, great film. So don't worry... If your life seems like you take one step forward, sometimes two steps back, okay? This is absolutely clear to us in Scripture that God does this. God does this. Sometimes it is not straight forward. Sometimes your life plan is not 
linear. But if you keep following God, if you will persevere, God will get you where you're supposed to be. He will get you where you're supposed to be exactly at the time you're supposed to be there. Resist the temptation to push the fast forward. I get so impatient sometimes. Lord, I've been in this season for too long now. Surely you know this. Where's the fast forward button? How do we skip steps? I don't know about you, but like I'm constantly trying to find shortcuts in life. It's one of my problems. If there's traffic, I'm like, I know how to get around. And I will literally think that I can skip traffic. I know the roads. I can do this. And sometimes when I try to do that, it's like the Truman Show. You ever watch the Truman Show where he turns down a road and suddenly all these cars come out and there's a traffic jam. He's got to start back again. And God sometimes does that. Sometimes we try to shortcut his plans and he does a Truman Show on us and he blocks the way. Why? Because it's a process. Because God knows better than you and I. Because God's plan and his timing are perfect and yours are not. How many of you know that God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life? Sometimes I I find myself not standing in faith and I don't believe that sometimes. I'm like, God, surely this is not the best plan for me right now. I know better. No, you don't. God's plans are best. His timing is perfect. He knows where you're supposed to be and when you're supposed to be there. So we find David here in the cave of Adullam, here at this low end of his life. And what are the first words that he pens? In this psalm, are they, why me, God? Why? No. They were, I will bless the Lord at all times. When life seems most difficult for David, his words were, I will bless the Lord at all times. It reminds me of Job, who endured probably the worst day any of us could ever imagine. Lost all of his livestock, lost all of his uh, equipment and farming. He lost all of his servants and he lost all of his children all in one day. And we read in Job 1 that he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We read that Job fell to the ground and worshipped. I want to ask the question, do we worship God? At all times. Can we give God praise. Not just when the going is good. But when the going is decidedly bad. Can we still worship God. David says that God's praise won't just be something that he keeps to himself. But he says this in verse 1. That your praise will be in my mouth. Spurgeon says. God deserves blessing with the heart and extolling with the mouth. Good thoughts in the closet and good words in the world. I believe that worship is at its most pleasing to God. When it is not just privately held in our hearts or in our minds, but connects with our words. And with our voice. 
I personally find that when I sing to the Lord on my own, it does something to me. I don't know about you, but it does something to my soul when I shut myself away and I sing to the Lord. And that praise is given voice. It is so powerful. And it often overrides the feelings that I'm struggling with in my soul. Praise is not just to be held privately in the mind, though that is very good. It is also to connect with your mouth, with your voice. And David enjoins us, the reader, to exalt the Lord with him. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Now, there's nothing that we can do that could make God bigger than he already is. In fact, I think there is much that we could do to magnify him more. I think that's what the church needs, to be honest, in the West in these days, is to have a bigger vision of God. When we think about a magnifying glass, for example, when we look through a magnifying glass, it doesn't make the object bigger, of course, does it? But it enlarges the object in our sight. And that's what it means to magnify God, is simply to make God bigger in your sight. Now, I think many of the issues that we face in life is because we have too small a view of God. God has been made too small in our sight. The enemy is made too big. We're all out of proportion. I think we need to magnify the Lord, to make him larger in our sight, to feast on what scripture says about him. And as we do, we'll praise him. We fill ourselves up with truth about him. In verses four to six of this psalm, David talks about his deliverance from Abimelech. Verse four you say, he sought the Lord, verse 4. He cried out for help, verse 6. He cried out for help to the Lord. A cry is something that nobody has to teach you. It's the one thing, the, the one noise, the one communicative thing that you can do that nobody had to teach you. You came out of your mum's womb being able to cry. It's the most visceral of all ways of communication we can all do it nobody needs to learn to do it you need to learn to stop doing it isn't that true if there's one thing we teach ourselves particularly as men growing up it's to stop crying to damn that well up but it's not something you ever need to teach anybody is and crying why do we cry as babies well we cry because we need it we need something and we're utterly dependent upon our parents for that thing. And so prayer, the prayer that David cried out, was a prayer of absolute dependence and need. Anybody ever felt that prayer cry rise up in them at any point in their life when they've been brought to the end of themselves? You've got, you've got nothing left inside of you. The only option is God you need to come through here or else I'm done for. That's a cry of prayer. It's a prayer of utter dependence upon God. And David says, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and answered. How many, you know, sometimes God needs to bring you to the end of yourself. Sometimes you, you need to be exhausted of every other option and brought to that place where all you've got is a cry of prayer. And that's where God brought David. And David says, 
he heard this poor man cry out and answered. He answered. The Lord delivered him from all of his fears. From all of his fears. That's a good word, isn't it? How many of us deal every week with fears? Some of them come like irrational thoughts that pop into our minds and we think of all the possibilities of things that go wrong and begin to worry. Others of these fears come like deep, settling depression that rests upon us. But when we cry out to the Lord, He hears us and He is able to deliver us from all of these fears, all of these anxieties, all of our depression. God is able to deliver us just as he delivered David. David says in verse 6, the Lord saved him out of all of his troubles. He says, the angel of the Lord encamped around him and rescued him. I want you to think about this for a moment. The Lord rescued David and saved him out of all of his troubles. I often wrestled and still do sometimes in my unbelief moments. We all have them. I've often wrestled with the idea that God, rather than being kind and ready to help me, often sometimes struggle with the idea that God is maybe a little bit austere in attitude. You know, I used to think that God would absolutely, he would deliver me from danger. So long as I hadn't gotten into that danger through my own stupidity. If I'd gotten into the danger by my own stupidity, I often imagined that God would have this attitude of, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. Anybody ever felt like that? They thought, well, I can't pray about this one thing because I stuffed up, I made this mess, I've created this, and I think God wants me to lie in that bed now. And I struggled with that for a long time. And I'm not condoning making stupid decisions, right? Just saying that we all do it. But I am saying this. Think about what David did. It was one of the stupidest things he could possibly have done. He absolutely got himself into this mess. It was his fault that he nearly got killed by Abimelech. Think of it, what was David famous for? If he was famous for one thing, it was for killing and beheading Goliath. Where was Goliath from? From Gath. From the very city that David's rocking up to, Goliath was their hero. And David's showing up, not just on his own, but with men and with the very sword of Goliath. He's got Goliath's sword, the same sword that he beheaded Gath's hero with, David is now showing up to Gath with Goliath's sword in his hand. How stupid do you need to be? Going to the hometown of your enemy, expecting what? A a welcome? Salvation? I don't know, but David got himself into this mess. David got himself into this tight spot. You know, of course, he pretended then to be out of his mind, didn't he? He, he, he fibbed. 
He fibbed. He pretended to be crazy so that they would let him go. Think, think of that. Do you think God would be pleased at that? At David aping insanity? I, I don't think that would have pleased. I actually think David sinned in doing that. But God still used it to deliver him. It's, it's crazy. Even if David would have been insane, do you not think it would have been the king's natural inclination to kill him anyway? We've got this chance to kill the guy who killed Goliath. Let's take it. But Achish lets him go. God delivers David, even though it was his mess, his mistakes, his sin that got him into the mess in the first place. Don't sit in your mess. Because you're worried that God won't rescue you because it's your fault. Don't stay in a, in a place of fear and anxiety just because you don't think you deserve to be rescued. Maybe you don't deserve to be rescued. But God loves you. He loves you more than you could imagine. And he will save those who call on his name. Call out to God, just like David did. Cry out to God. God's mercy and kindness will always outrun your mistakes and your failures. Don't be like me with that mindset I used to have, thinking, nah, he wants me to lie in this one. Call out to him. Cry out to him. Verse 7, draw to a close. Verse 7 tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's what David says. The angel of the Lord now, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, of course, appears a number of times. He's a mysterious figure. He appears before Gideon, doesn't he, in Judges 6. And Gideon was very afraid that he would die because he had seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, many think that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is actually Jesus himself. A pre-incarnation appearance of the second person of the Trinity. And what David says here, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, is absolutely true of Jesus. John 6, 39 and 40, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is it to fear the Lord? Well, it's not to be in paralyzed fear of him, it's not to be shaken, although I do think that God is awesome. God is beyond comprehension and you would fall on your face if the glorified Jesus showed up in this room today. Make no bones about it. But to fear the Lord is to do with seeking refuge in him. It's to do with trusting him. It's to do with dedicating your life to him, being obedient to him. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And all those who seek refuge in the Lord are safe. All who seek refuge in Christ shall be saved. I want to ask, what harm can come to us if we're in the camp of the Almighty? What harm can come to you 
apart from God's will if he literally encamps around your life. There's no person that can do you will. There's no spiritual force that can break in through the ranks of Almighty God and cause calamity in your life, is there? The only things that can happen to you are those things which are for your good. Romans 8, 28, he works all things, say all things, all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. If the angel of the Lord encamps around you, brothers and sisters, what need you fear? There's nothing that can harm you in the camp of the Almighty. There's nothing that can hurt you if you're in Christ. You are secure. Finally, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You never have to convince somebody who's tasted honey. You'll never be able to convince them, rather, that honey isn't sweet. No matter how many arguments you've got, no matter how many logical propositions that you can muster, you'll never be able to convince me honey's not sweet. The same is true of somebody who has tasted that God is good. It doesn't matter how many arguments the most angry atheists can raise. You'll never be able to convince that one person who's tasted the sweetness of God that God is not good. Those who've encountered him, experienced him at work in their lives, cannot be persuaded otherwise that God is good. And so I would say this as a Christian, as a Christian, our knowledge of God, what we know about him, that is theology. I want you to hear this. Theology is not a dirty word. It's a good thing. But theology isn't just to be known theoretically, is it? It's to be known both in our minds, but also experientially. We're supposed to know God experientially. Because a Christian isn't just somebody who knows things about God, is it? The devil knows an awful lot more than you do about God. But he's not a Christian. A Christian is somebody who knows God and is known by him and tastes and sees that God is good. It's a two-way relationship. Christianity is a living relationship with Almighty God. So how do we taste and see? How do we taste and see that God is good? Firstly, by faith. By faith. By trust. It's impossible, therefore... For somebody who hates God and disbelieves in God to know of his goodness. Because we know God by faith. So I want to put that to you today. If you don't have faith in God, we've got to stop here. Yes, God will be good to you in that he'll give you oxygen to breathe so far as he has ordained your life to be along, uh, around in this world. He's good to the, the wicked and to those who are his. However, you will not be able to taste and see of God's ultimate goodness without faith. We must trust him. We must come to him humbly. 
open our hearts to him and ask him to touch our lives afresh. Secondly, we can know, taste his goodness in his word. Is a constant source of support to our lives. A constant source of rivers of living water poured out into our lives. You want to taste and see that God is good? Get stuck into his word. Find out about him. That book that you've got, that Bible is not just like any other book. It's not just letters and characters on a page. It is the very word of God. It is able to perform all that it says. It's a living word. That's what the Bible says. It's a living word. If you want to taste and see that he's good, immerse yourself in his word. Thirdly, how do we taste and see that he's good? In prayer. In prayer. God has given us this ordinance of prayer so that we might know him, so that we might grow in trust for him. When we pray, we get to see him working in our lives. I'm sure many of you have kept prayer diaries, kept notes of what you've prayed for, and then seen God come through with an answer. That is a history of God's goodness in your life. We know his goodness through prayer. And finally, we know his goodness in providence. We know his goodness in providence. Providence is simply God's ordering of all the affairs of heaven and earth. Which means, as we confess in this church, that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of God. The Bible tells us not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from your Father in heaven. Now, if that's true, how much more true of your lives? You are not at the behest of random forces in this world. Satan is not sovereign, God is sovereign. And therefore, we know God through his providence, through the things that come to us in life. Perhaps a relationship, a friendship that God opens up for you. Perhaps a, a job. Perhaps just mundane things in life as you walk or travel to work. God will put certain things in your way. This happens sometimes, doesn't it? God orders the affairs of this world. We can know and taste and see his goodness. In the affairs of life, even if they are challenging, we know that God is working through them if we trust in him. Finally, David says that young lions, even the most powerful of all beasts, will suffer lack and hunger. But they who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Isn't that just an encouraging word? You will lack no good thing if you seek the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, I have not written that quote down, but I thought I had. He said, simple-minded believers who dare not act as the greedy lions of the earth are fed with food convenient for them. To trust God is better policy than the craftiest politicians can teach or practice. <laughs> Listen to that. To trust God is better policy than the craftiest politicians can teach or practice. You know, in the world, we're taught that if anything's going to get done, you better get out, get out there and get it done, right? God helps those who help themselves. You know, I just get so stressed sometimes when I'm scrolling through 
Instagram or whatever, looking at reels and you know all the influence on there, influencers on there with their cars and their crazy lives. You know, oh, all you need to do to have this life is you just need to know X, Y, and Z. You need to get into this business. You need to train yourself up in this way. You need to have this mindset and you can have everything that you need. And it puts pressure on me. I'm like, I'm never gonna do that. That's never gonna be me. I can't do all those things. I'm just overwhelmed watching the video. How will I ever have the, well, God says, listen, you will lack no good thing if you seek me. Elsewhere we read in scripture, don't we? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear. Do not worry about what you will put on the table for food. Don't worry about what you'll clothe yourself with. Don't be obsessed with the things of these world's possessions, money, whatever it is. God will get you all that you need. God will give you everything that you need in this life. And you'll lack no good thing if you will but seek him. Let's stand. There's a few things that I felt just to bring to you this morning. If you're here today and you have been struggling with fear, with anxiety, with, with depression, I hope that you've heard today how there is a God in heaven who can deliver from those things. I encourage you to, to bring those fears before him, not to hide them away. You know, the enemy wants us to keep those things locked away in secret. Don't hide them. Bring them before God this morning. Second thing was, I think maybe there are people here this morning who have gotten themselves into a bit of a mess and are panicking about it and not wanting to tell anybody because they're worried. No one will want to help me because I've got myself into this silly mess myself. Well, I hope you've heard today how God delivers us even from messes of our own making. And to bring that mess to him, however hot that mess is, God can fix it. God is able and there's no need to walk in shame. You know, I hate shame. How many of you hate shame? We weren't meant to walk with shame on our shoulders and I felt like the Lord would like to cut that that shame today off of our lives. So if you've been carrying something heavy and you're ashamed of it today, bring it before God. Don't walk out of here carrying that shame. Maybe even speak to someone today who you trust and say, you know what, can I just tell you this? And receive prayer for it. Don't walk out of here carrying shame. And the third thing was, I just feel like God again would say, you know, if you want to encounter me afresh, if you want to taste and see that I'm good, I'm here today for you. I'm here today for you. And as we worship and sing this final song together, I'd encourage you just to step into his presence consciously. Just to say, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to encounter you. I'm ready to taste and see that you are good today. I'm sure invite the worship team to come. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful truth that you are a saviour. That you are a saviour. That you are a, a God who helps us in our difficulties. You're a God who delivers from every trial and every difficulty that we got ourselves into. And we are like lost sheep. 
We are like sheep who are prone to stray and get lost. But Lord, we trust not in ourselves to find our way back, but in you, the great shepherd, the great deliverer of our souls. And so Lord, we bring ourselves before you and we, we thank you, Lord, that you've delivered us out of sin today. And if you're here this afternoon and you don't know, you don't know the Lord. And you can't say with confidence that the angel of the Lord encamps around you. There's only one way to have that, and that is to trust in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will know him as refuge. You'll know him as strength. You'll know him as your Lord. So as you come and worship you now, Lord God, we pray, Father, that you would bring deliverance from fear. We pray you would bring deliverance from shame. And we pray, Lord, that we might taste and see this morning that you are good.